the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 2. A delight, as always, to bring Brandon J. Weikert back to the show, a columnist for the Asia Times, Washington Times, American Greatness, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, The Shadow War, Ron's Quest for Supremacy, and a book coming out next year on China, Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. Brandon, happy Monday. Busy weekend of news, huh? Oh, yes, yes. And happy Monday to you as well. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Our country and its leadership is not. Um, no. And I want to I, I talk <laughs> about your piece of the Washington Times on Russia yeah. and satellites. But first, let me just bookmark that for a moment. Uh, yeah. First, um, Iran. You have uh, a book coming out available next month on Iran. Yeah. The uh, United Nations is about to open its, what, 77th or 78th general session this month. Yep. And the president of Iran, Ibrahim uh, Raisi, calmly flies into the United States to attend yep. the U.N. General Assembly. He gave an interview to 60, just for people to understand how out of touch with the world, out of touch with history these people are. It's not just the mullahs. This is President Raisi. He was asked... He was asked on 60 Minutes, Brandon, and it's maybe indicative that they even need to ask this question, but they asked him uh, if he believed that the Holocaust happened. You know what his answer was? There are some signs that it did. There are some signs that it did. I just want people to understand what a retrograde, backwards leader on the secular, quote-unquote, non-Mullah side of Iran we are dealing with here as we speak. Iran is spraying down and killing protesters in the streets of Tehran. And this yep. guy just blithely comes to the United States with protection offered by the United States. Yeah. This this is this is a world gone mad, Brandon. Yeah, and remember, this is at the same time that the Biden administration and the Democrats are calling the Republican Party the party of Nazis. Right. Uh, you know, this is the same time. So so actual Nazis, as represented by Ibrahim Raisi and the Islamic Republic of Iran, right. and let's face it, that's what they are. They're Nazis with an Islamist flair in right. Iran. Right. Actual Nazis are coming into the United States, being given top-notch Secret Service protection, NYPD protection, the red carpet's being rolled out for them at the U.N., at the same time, the Biden administration is doing everything in its power to hand the Middle East over to a nuclear-arming Iran, looking the other way the entire time while Iran builds nuclear weapons with which to threaten their neighbors yep. and the United States. And meanwhile, Biden is more exercised about, you know, hidden phantom right-wing Nazis or whatever yeah. uh, than he is about actual Nazis as represented by the Holocaust-denying um, or at least the Holocaust skeptical, uh, if that's even a quali- qualifier, uh, the Holocaust denying Ibrahim uh, Raisi, who is speaking, of course, for the whole regime, 
we remember back to 2008 and 9, Ahmadinejad, uh, the then president of Iran, also was a Holocaust denier, and they were trotting him out in New York City. Columbia University hosted yep. him. That's right. uh, UN hosted him. Yep. Uh, so this is par for the course. If you are an anti-Semitic, anti-American dictator with delusions of annihilating both the Israelis and the Americans, uh, the New York elite and the Democratic Party writ large will welcome you with open arms, even as they're waging at least rhetorical war on their political opponents at home in the United States, as represented by the Republican Party. You know, Brandon, I want to stick with just this just a moment, because one of the refrains your listeners will often hear you say is we're not serious. And there was a time when we were and we won. I was reminding uh, people um, in 1983, after the 007 flight, Korean Airliners yeah. 007 was shot yeah. down. You know, we took this pretty serious, so much so people will say, well, you can't prevent a foreign leader from coming to address the United Nations. You damn well can. Yes, and, we can. And, and, and a Democrat, Mario Cuomo, and a Republican, yeah. Tom Kane, denied landing rights to Andre Gromyko to come here to speak at the United yeah. Nations. They threatened to walk out and leave the United Nations, and our deputy secretary to the mission, Jean Kirkpatrick's deputy, Charles Lichtenstein, said, you want to leave? We'll put no impediment in your way. We will wish, right. you, we will stand at the dockside and wave you a fond farewell. And you know That's what? Right. We didn't have to because they didn't leave. But, you know, right. once upon a time, we wouldn't allow murderers of Americans and abusers of civilization onto this soil, and it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago, but now, of course, we have to because of Trump, right. I guess. Right. I don't know. that. You know, that's the logic. Well, Trump was so bad for our alliances and for global affairs. Right. You know, he wasn't a citizen of the world. We have to make Iran uh, think and, well of us, yeah. Yes. And, and of course, uh, you know, Biden is representing a faction of the American elite, most a majority of the American elite, who really thinks that it's in our best interest to do a deal with Iran, that the reason Iran has behaved so insanely since 1979 was not because of this ridiculous ideology that the, the Iranian leadership believes in, this Shiite supremacist, Persian supremacist form of Islamism. No, no, the American elite says it's just because America is just so awful and they're so bad to the Iranians. That's why the Iranians are acting like this. And if we just we just play nice with them and we just we bring them into the fold like we did with the communist Chinese and we'll all work out in the end. And of course, today we're all realizing the truth of dealing with the Chinese uh, Communist Party the way we have the last 50 years. So why not replicate that failed strategy with a lunatic regime that honestly thinks it's their job to bring about the apocalypse and to annihilate their unholy enemies? in order to bring about some great heaven-on-earth moment. This is what they believe. This is who you're dealing with. And this is the regime that the Biden administration and Obama before them and Carter before them clearly have no problem or compunction about doing a, a big deal with. That's right.
That's right. Let me let me let me move a little bit east. I mentioned sixty minutes last night. Uh, Joe Biden, our president, was asked. Kind uh, of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he Scott Pelley said there's concern. Um, well, Scott Pelley said, "What should Chinese President Xi know about your commitment to Taiwan?" Reading from the transcript, Joe Biden said, "We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago." And that's the one China policy. And Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We're not encouraging their being independent. That's their decision. Scott Pelley. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Biden. Yes. If, in fact, there was an unprecedented attack. Yes. Um, As Dana Perino likes to say, clean up on aisle five necessary here. Right. Right. Well, we already saw as soon as he said it sounded like a pretty emphatic statement. Yeah. I watched that interview and I was like, holy cow, good for him. And yep. then, of course, within an hour or two, the White House senior official is walking it back, begging the question, not just in my mind, but in the capitals of every nation in the world. And they have to be wondering who the heck is running the country yep. here? Yep. Because Biden says as president, basically, China, you start something with Taiwan, it's direct war with the United right. States. And not more than an hour or two after the airing of that special, that interview, the White House is putting out, oh, no, 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 well, let me just qualify. We don't really mean that. Nothing's really changed. Uh, So that indicates to me that, A, there's some kind of power struggle going on behind the scenes. B, Biden's not really in charge, obviously. And C, uh, the Chinese are sitting there going, even within that statement Biden made, unprecedented attack yeah. on Taiwan. Right. What does that mean? Right. What is an unprecedented yeah. attack? Yeah. Shouldn't it just be an attack on Taiwan? He Why might have. He probably. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. I'll give it you and I'll take do it. That. He probably was thinking <laughs> unprovoked. But but this is I have to go to break. Can we pick this up sure. on the other side? The, yeah. But here's here's the thing. This is not the first time he's done this or the first time the White House has had this like Three times he has done this, yes. and the White House has had to clean it up. Deja vu, all Deja over vu again. which tells me something even more dangerous, which is Joe Biden is not capable of learning or listening or even well, understanding recent charge. history. Now, exactly <laughs> right. Let me take a quick commercial break, Brandon. We'll come back and pick up on that. And then I want to talk to you a little bit more about China and policy. You tweeted uh, something about China sending a warning to the U.S. about domestic electrical vehicle battery production. And then I want to get to your piece in the Washington Times on Russia. Brandon Weicker is our guest. You can follow him on Twitter. Uh, he is uh, at we the Brandon. We the Brandon. I'm Seth. He's Brandon. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you're looking for a remarkable investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check out my friends at Y Refi. They're offering a fixed, no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Y Refi is a due diligence-approved firm of investors who do really well by doing good for others, and you can be a part of that as well. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y. R-E-F-Y dot com, investyrefi.com, or give them a call at 855-316-3087. That's 855-316-3087. Brandon Weikert is our guest. Brandon, before I move on 
to uh, China and electric vehicle threats and supply chain threats, a fan of yours and a regular listener here uh, sent me an email to uh, g- uh, to give you a, uh, to send to you to throw you the question. And I guess one might put it under the category, is Joe Biden playing three-dimensional chess? He writes, is the confusion coming from Biden and the White House really just a well-disguised continuation of strategic ambiguity? Will the Chinese take it that way, or do they know we have a fool in charge? Yeah. So that's a very... It's kind of interesting. interesting. Yeah, Yeah. you want to spend a second on it. Yeah. Yeah, no, so basically that's on my Twitter page. You'll notice a lot of people have been commenting along similar lines, particularly my readers from overseas, saying, no, this is just just another iteration of strategic ambiguity, uh, which is basically a continuation of U.S. foreign policy as it relates to China and Taiwan going back to 1979. The problem with that argument is I really have trouble believing that this is a continuation of that, especially because when Biden came into office, both he and his team were saying very unambiguous things initially about China. And actually, you and I talked about this a year ago. Mm -hmm. It sounded like he was actually Biden was going to continue a lot of the harsher Trump policies toward China. But then last summer, or or rather this summer, um, something started to change. Really around April, May, uh, the administration began to change its rhetoric and its its tax. So I don't know if it's fair to put that much emphasis on Biden continuing strategic ambiguity. Certainly we can hope. Um, But my, my gut feeling on this is that Biden says things that are inherently inaccurate or, dare I say, untrue. Right. Um, he was, even before his brain fell out, he was a profligate liar. Yep. Um, and now with whatever's going on with his age-related mental issues, um, he clearly is kind of taking that to a new extreme. Yep. I think he really believed he was saying something 100% accurate. Yeah. His administration will defend Taiwan if a, quote, unprecedented attack, whatever that means, right. occurs. But I don't think anyone else in the administration believes that. Certainly not the people who are actually in charge of the administration. And I do think it's one other, one other point to make related to this is the term unprecedented attack. Yeah. So what does that mean? Right. Does that mean that he's talking directly about an invasion? But what happens if China, and I have said this for a while, China might not do a direct amphibious invasion because it's too complex and too risky. They might just decide to blockade the island for the next several years. Mm-hmm. Is that an unprecedented attack, or is that just a blockade? Right. Are we going to go to war over a blockade, especially if China isn't actually physically damaging Taiwanese infrastructure or killing anybody directly? You know, that's so I see that term, and I go, what the heck is he saying? Because I can tell you Beijing is looking at that term going, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What Does that mean that it gives us a wiggle room? Because remember, remember, right before Russia invaded Ukraine, Biden met with Putin, and he made some comment to the effect that um, he was basically, and I wish I could remember the exact quote, but basically he said, he defined what would constitute an attack. That's right. And it was, That's right. Do you remember That's this? right. Yes, 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 yes. And then he got into a debate about whether it was a yes. large attack Putin, or a small incursion. I think the word was it. incursion. Yeah. Right, yes. Right, right, right. 
And so Putin and many of the Russian propagandists are saying, aha, well, that means that we have some wiggle room here. That's right. Well, who's to say that Beijing do the same thing again? That's right. And also, so I don't know if really even, even if Joe Biden question. does think this, even if he does think it, it's a change. It's a it's a massive change in policy. But if you're an ally of the United States, in this case, Taiwan, what the heck are you thinking when the president says that and immediately the entirety of the rest of the administration says, no, not that we don't mean that. I, I think that they are hanging their hat on the hope, like your callers, yeah. or your, your, yeah. the guy who wrote yeah. in you, that this I, is all just part of strategic ambiguity. Yeah. But I don't think it is. Yeah, I don't either. And I got to tell you, the Taiwan Relations Act is written in such a way where it gives a lot of wiggle room to an American president for if they don't want to defend Taiwan, there are a million and one ways yep. under the Taiwan Relations Act that we are not obligated oh, to yeah. do it, despite having that alone. Oh, yeah. No, it, it, it was written very, yeah, it was written directly uh, with, <laughs> with volitional ambiguity, shall we say. Yes, All right. What is this thing about China sends a warning to the U.S. about domestic battery production? My gosh. Uh, yeah. Chinese Ambassador Kui Gang had a message for the U.S. about its plan to establish our own supply chain. Don't. Okay, they were more polite about it than that, but China's now threatening us about us trying to have a modicum yeah. of independence on our energy supplies well, here? Yeah, this is a nightmare for them. They are, you know, they are a, not only are they a captive, the people of China are a captive market, as we talked about last week, but China's regime needs that easy access to our own market, right. not only to gain access to raw materials or to gain access to our businesses, but obviously to gain access to um, proprietary data that they can either steal or buy uh, and then fold into their own domestic uh, uh, innovation hub. And so if we were to cut them off, and to diversify from them, which we need to do, and we, we have started to do, and I hope hopefully by the end of the decade we will have done, uh, that could spell a disaster for China at a time when they're already nuking their own real estate market to try to force that money instead of going into real estate, they're trying to re-divert it into the technology sector of China to force growth there. Imagine now if America actually did follow through and if not cut off entirely, seriously reduce the connectivity between our tech market, in this case with electric vehicle uh, battery production, and China. That could really do damage to China's economy. Uh, it could slow down the global economy in a certain way because we're so dependent on one another. But the longer term could be that America finally gets self-sufficient again in a very critical area. Uh, and that could set the tone for the rest of America's trading profile as it relates to China. And that's a nightmare. Remember, I am convinced that Donald Trump's agricultural trade war, which he was doing to just get a better deal on those products with China, I think Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership viewed that as an unofficial yeah. act of war, which yeah. is why they probably launched COVID-19 at us to destabilize us in response. So I think that they're, they, they are looking at trade as a weapon. And they're worried, uh-oh, if the Americans pull back, well, then we're going to get hit severely because we can't then gain access yeah. to that technology and whatnot. And that hurts them exactly. economically. I think that's right. Brandon, let me take a quick commercial break. When we come back, let's get to your Washington Times piece out today. Russia readies to attack U.S. satellites. Other pleasant yep. news. I'm Seth. He's Brandon. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest, among other things, a columnist for The Washington Times, where he has his most recent piece up today, Russia readies to attack U.S. satellites. It just gets worse and worse, doesn't it, Brandon? Yeah, yeah. Um, It's looking to me like, first of all, the Ukrainians, as we've talked about before, have really waged an incredible fight. They were the underdogs in this. And um, they've managed to really not only stay in the fight for the last, my God, seven months, um, but they have also been able to really outmaneuver and really break the Russian OODA loop decision cycle, uh, which is key in modern combat. Um, with their recent offenses in particular, there's real concern in Russia, the leadership at least, that the Russian military might get pushed out entirely of Ukraine, which would be great for the Ukrainians. But that also now leads to a starker conclusion, which is where my article comes in, which is Vladimir Putin's regime has held off using some of those bigger strategic weapons and using those kind of unconventional attacks on NATO and American assets, such as our satellites. They've held off from that. But if it looks like there's going to be a real strategic defeat of Russia's military in Ukraine by the Ukrainians who are, you know, only able to fight because of the largesse of American and NATO military aid, um, if it looks like that Russia's going to lose, what's stopping Vladimir Putin from saying, okay, now it's time for me to change the conditions of the fight. Now I'm going to escalate against the Americans in NATO. I don't really care about the blowback because... As Russia's strongman, who's already, you know, he's in his 70s, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, he, he's already old. The situation in Russia's economic sphere, as well as its political sphere, is deteriorating. Uh, Putin's grip on power is already being threatened because of the war. In about six more months, the Russian economy, under current conditions, even with the help of China and India, Russia's current economy is going to collapse under current conditions in about six months. Um, And so Vladimir Putin is desperate to change the narrative. He's desperate to appear or to at least give uh, some victory, semblance of a victory militarily to Russia so that he can then turn around to his people and say, I know it was hard, but look at what I did. I've gotten back what I said I'd get back for us. And the only way he can do that is to escalate. The only way he can do that is to probably pop off some nukes or chemical or bioweapons. In that 60 Minutes interview that Biden did, he directly addressed this. And basically begged Putin not to do anything foolish. But from Putin's perspective, this is it for him. This is his swan song. He cannot come home with, you know, hat in hand. He's got to have some food to put on the plate. And that food has got to be Ukraine, a victory there militarily. So he is willing, I think, if push comes to shove, to, to risk World War III. Um, and I don't think many people in Washington until the last week were really kind of contemplating this. I know when I brought it up. I was laughed out of the room. Right, they don't want to uh, hear it from you. Yeah. They don't want to hear it. Right, it's all, you know, that virtue signaling. So what I will say is before he can pop off nukes or, or do some kind of WMD attack in Ukraine, Mr. Putin is going to have to target American satellites that would detect such launches and alert our forces that, hey, we've got incoming. So he's going to target, I believe, our surveillance satellites with anti-satellite weapons. He's going to target... Uh, our, our nuclear, possibly our nuclear command control communication satellites in geosynchronous orbit, where, so that he would degrade our nuclear deterrent. 
to such a point that, yeah, we might be able to retaliate, but it will be uncoordinated and not as reliable, which is all Russia needs. Going back to the Cold War, Russia never conditioned themselves to totally survive an American retaliation. And the Russians have always conditioned their forces to survive just enough to be able to win, to have the last people standing. And so we completely misread the situation. And my great fear is that, sadly, the more successful Ukraine is, and good for them, but the more successful Ukraine is on the ground because of our assistance, the more likely that Russia is going to lash out directly either at us or the NATO allies and, and will court World War Three, And we are not prepared for that as a society. All right. That's exactly where I was hoping you would end uh, before I go to the next segment with you. This was a short one. We have a longer one because it raises really duality of questions. If China goes to Taiwan in whatever attack, precedented or un, if Russia goes against our they satellites, will. yeah, do we have the ability to do anything uh, in response? How would we go after Putin? How would we, if we had to, could we defend Taiwan? Can we uh, put that off to the next segment when we come yeah, back? Let's do it. What are the United States capabilities in both cases? I'm Seth. He's Brandon Weikert. You'll want his books. You can get them on Amazon or any other online sales retailer, Barnes & Noble. They're available in fine bookstores. Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. Hey, Brandon, you want to hear something you might like? Yeah. For a change? <laughs> okay. Uh, I was over at Amazon uh, looking at your books, and um, Amazon gave me three recommended authors I might also like since I looked for you. I got yeah. William Bennett, I got Dennis Prager, and I got Tom Wolfe. Not a bad crowd you're it. in. <laughs> I'm very honored. All three. Wow. That's those are big shoes to fill. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad crowd. All right, Brandon. If Putin does go after our satellites, what would be the proportionate or right or even effectual or doable response from the United States? Well, this is the problem is that everybody's talking about proportion, but the reason that the Russians are targeting those satellites is because it is inherently disproportionate. We are more reliant on, this, on space assets than any other country in the world. The Russians and Chinese know that. This is why they are targeting those systems. It is relatively cheap for them to do this compared to the kind of very expensive damage they're going to do to us in space. And so I think the first, this is how most of Washingtonians, this is how they address it is, well, what's the proportionate response? I think that we should not be looking at a proportionate response. I think we should be looking at a disproportionate Good. response because it is inherently a disproportionate act. Good. Um, it, it, and, and then also in terms of the whole response part, I think that we are way too reactive in space. And how, how space works is a little bit different. You know, um, if you get hit on land or at sea or in the air, conceivably you can pretty much pivot and hit back. The problem is in space, because of the way the orbital mechanics work, um, you know, you destroy a satellite or a constellation of satellites, the, the debris from those destroyed systems may ricochet. Remember that great 2013 uh, Sandra Bullock, George Bush film, oh, yeah. Gravity. Right. 
Okay, so that it's called the Kessler syndrome. Mm -hmm. Basically, you destroy an object in space, it creates a debris field. Space is a vacuum. So that debris is going to scatter and shoot everywhere. It's not going to just disappear. It's going to go somewhere, and it could knock out in a cascading fashion, fashion all of the rest of the space aspects in orbit. So even if the Chinese or Russians are trying to be surgical in their strikes, if they're using a, a kinetic weapon at least, uh, they could potentially knock out all of the world's satellites or a large chunk of them, um, which is a huge damage to the world and to the United States in particular. So we can't wait to react. Once you start losing in space, you don't stop losing in right. space. And once you lose space, you lose all the other domains on Earth, land, sea, air, and in cyber. Oh uh, so the best thing to do would be to stay left of boom, okay? You, you, or you, or you, don't, you do not want to have to fight a space war. So something we should be doing is we should, the president should come out, and people should not walk this back in the White House. President should come out and say a single attack on a satellite, an American satellite. That's it. It's a direct act of war. If we have to react, that's it. It's a war on Earth, and we are going to go full bore, including risking nuclear war. So don't try it. Then, that the pre then what needs to be done is we need to start making our satellites more survivable. Now this is a more medium term thing, but we need to start it now. We need to make our satellites harder to kill. We need to look at Elon Musk's Starlink model, where he has a, thousands or hundreds of these rudimentary satellites operating in a constellation, but they're easy to replace if they get damaged, and they're easy to maintain. Our current military satellites in particular are very complicated, and so they're, they're easy to destroy, and when they go, they're so complicated, they're too expensive to replace in a timely manner, and the Russians and Chinese know this. There are a few spares on hand. So we need to work on making our satellite constellations less sophisticated and more easily replaceable. Then we need to work on being able to offload the functions of those military satellites that could be destroyed in the war. We need to work on basically sharing burden sharing with allied satellite constellations beyond what we already do. And then also we need to be able to burden share even with civilian constellations that may be nearby. And the reason is because at that point, we can't worry about necessarily securing the data. We have to worry about maintaining capabilities in a fight. Now, that's all if we get hit. But preferably, we would get to a point where we have developed such a robust counterspace capability of our own that the Chinese and the Russians wouldn't dare to screw with us up there. We're not there yet because the bureaucracy in Washington has been very resistant to this until very recently. And so until we get an actual leadership, uh, you know, in Washington that takes this thing seriously and, and brings a lot of, you know, resources to bear, we're going to still be nibbling around the edges. And it isn't going to be pretty because now we're in the point of no return. We're at that critical crisis where Russia very easily could attack and destroy these satellites. And I don't really know what we can do in the near term to prevent the attack. All I know is we can respond. But that response will precipitate a larger, wider, possibly nuclear war. And at that point, we'll be, we'll be firing with reduced capabilities, reduced line of sight, reduced reliability of the, of the deterrent. And so this is really a nightmare scenario in the near term. It really is. Which raises a series of questions about what we could do 
if we had to defend Taiwan as well, especially when the reports are from the Pentagon that if there was a change in policy and we are gearing up to defend Taiwan, we don't have the military footing or capability, I think, or at least arsenal. At least it hasn't been planned for such an eventuality. Right. I don't think it has. Well, and remember, we've already depleted most of our major right. weapons stores right. that would be needed to defend Taiwan. They've been depleted in Ukraine. Right. Um, and so now, and the Chinese know this. Yeah. They're, they, they, they're not dumb. And so they very easily could pull the trigger, whether it's a blockade and or invasion of Taiwan, and they could do it in a way that's going to stretch the American military machine, which is already stretched to its breaking point. Um, and so I do believe that, yes, China's going to attack Taiwan, and I think it's going to be a hell of a lot sooner, oh, sorry, a heck of a lot sooner um, than, um, than what we um, are believing it will be. You know, the Pentagon's running around saying 2027 is the magic year for that to happen. I think it could happen in the next few months, mm-hmm. the next six months. I really do, especially if it's a blockade, because that's a lot easier for China to do. Um, and all they need to do is let the Russians keep harrying us and, you know, distracting us. And then, oh, by the way, Iran is going to do something as well. And so now you've got two of these big regional players screwing with us. And that all that all that China needs at that point is to do something to Taiwan. And they know that we can't sacrifice those other two areas. We don't have enough resources to fight a two-and-a-half front war. So we're going to have to start picking and choosing where we're going to fight, and that's where we get into a real problem. Um, and so, yeah, China's absolutely going to do something um, soon, and they're looking at Russia, letting Russia drain us. And then right when we think we've got this thing resolved, I think that's with Russia, I think that's when China's really going to go hot to have it. Brandon, as I said earlier, <coughs> excuse me, it just gets worse and worse, which I guess is what militates in favor of having such a strong posture and such a decisive and clear yes. posture that we don't get to these right of boom situations in the first place. You know. Exactly. Exactly. That's what Rummy said, and he was right. Brandon J. Weikert, bless you, sir. Godspeed to you, and thank you for your time with us as well as your thank scholarship. You. you betcha. I'm Seth Liebson. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Cool To It, Cool Touch Air Conditioning, Heating, and Plumbing. It's the only company I use. I love these guys. Chris Funk and his team. You've heard him voice his ads. I have been using them for years. My friends have, too, and they think as much of Cool Touch as I do. It's the best. If you have any air conditioning needs right now, whether it's an inspection, a repair, an installation, a new unit, Cool Touch is the company you want. Same for plumbing. And soon enough, same for heating as well. Not soon enough because they aren't up to it. They've been at the job for years <laughs> just because of our climate. You probably don't need heating services just yet. But if you do or if you want to prepare for the winter, cooltouch.us. That's cooltouch.us or 623-748-4942, 623-748-4942. Used a great phrase, Brandon did. I hadn't heard it in a while. Did you catch it, Bill? He said, left of boom. Left of boom. There's left of boom and there's right of boom. 
I venture most people don't hear. It's a very specialized uh, phrase in law enforcement and the military. Left of boom means before the incident. What can you do left of the bang, before the bang, before the bomb hits? And right of boom, what do you do after? Of course, you want to be in a posture of left of boom. You want to do things before they happen rather than deal with them after. Obviously, you don't need an IQ more than five to know that, but you do need an IQ and you do need to have a serious posture, a serious posture which doesn't allow enemies to even want to contemplate an offense against us. We are nowhere in that posture. You look at that 60 Minutes interview. Look, watch the 60 Minutes interview itself. Watch it on 60 Minutes or watch, you know, watch, watch, watch it online on 60 Minutes, which you can still do. It's an amazing thing when Scott Pelley quotes the president of the United States on, in this case, Taiwan, quotes him on it, and then in the 60 Minutes episode says this. Scott Pelley says this. After our interview, a White House official told us U.S. policy has not changed. Officially, the U.S. will not say whether American forces would defend Taiwan. They're doing an they 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 did a live to tape interview with Joe Biden, which means they taped him and then they produced it. And then when the White House saw what happened. They called in to 60 Minutes so that 60 Minutes would put a correction in the real episode that we all saw. It's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment, and it projects not strength. It, proje- it projects confusion. It projects feeble-mindedness. It projects weakness. I'm Seth Liebson. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.